tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing, man. Yeah, that's remarkable. Alex, we're doing something very special today. It's the Tipping Pitches 5th Annual State of Labor in Baseball 2024, a year that I'm not sure that our guest ever really uh, contemplated getting to. You know, wasn't really ever looking that far in the future. Where are you, Mike? I was so certain I would be dead by now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're not because you have to be here providing (laughs) free labor for us. Happy to analyzing be here, the to industry. Be alive. <laughs> that kind of ca- encapsulates your energy really well, I, I think. <laughs> you make that maybe make that your Twitter bio. Um, hello, sir. It's good to see you. It's been a, it's been a minute since we chatted. Yeah, I miss you. Were, were you back in town for Christmas? I guess I wasn't here for Christmas. We're going to talk about this this in the rant, but yeah. I was back in town for Christmas. You know, Philadelphia around the holidays, it's exactly the same as the rest of the year. People still don't give a shit about life. Yeah, and one thing I miss about with climate change, you don't get that beautiful Christmas slush. Yeah, I just true. remember the the Shoprite parking lot of my youth just being covered in piles of gray sludge from people December don't know about to, Shoprite. To March. They don't know shit about Shoprite, Alex. You don't know about Shoprite. You don't even know what that is. Look at you. You don't know. That's true. Uh, deer and headlights over here. <laughs> uh, did you get snow on Christmas this year, Alex? In Chicago? No, we got it on New Year's though. So oh, that's, that's yeah, yeah. not yeah. that doesn't really count, but yeah, it's not the spirit of New Year's. They don't really say that. That's not <laughs> no. really a thing. Um, Mike, f- five years of this, five years of covering labor in baseball. How does that make you feel? You're a little, a, it's a, a cheeky amount of old. It or, makes or me, good? man, I feel so old now. I would say mostly <laughs> it makes me feel proud of how far you've come, Bobby. <laughs> I feel like I've raised you from a cub. You were just an embryo when we first started podcasting together, and and look at it now. What do you think is the uh, the number one thing that you've given me that you still see? The tool that you gave me that I've nurtured the most? I just think the confidence to really move up from our, you know, I really showed you the ropes on our little rinky dink baseball show, and now you're right. you know basically part of the part of the headlining act of the big picture, you know, <laughs> name and lights, all this, you know. You know what I have taken in life from you, Mike? A healthy skepticism towards everyone with any shred of power. And that's what we're here to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) How are you feeling about labor in baseball? Um, We are uh, two years removed from a lockout. Yeah. Only one year removed from actually receiving the CBA document that ended that lockout uh, for public consumption. And uh, we're at what I guess we would call traditional labor peace. Uh, but what 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 does that mean to you? Do you do you believe in the concept of labor peace? How are you feeling about the state of labor in baseball? No, I well, I don't know that I necessarily. There is no peace without total victory. I think so. Absent global proletarian revolution, we are all in a state of of conflict. God, to, he's so back. He's, he's so, so back. Back. he's locked in. The fastball is clocking in. <laughs> uh, but there are different intensities of conflict and I feel comfortable with the level of, I would say relatively low intensity of, of baseball labor conflict. This is definitely, I think the lowest ebb of intensity in the conflict between players and management. Uh, certainly since you and I've been talking about baseball together, yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years uh, because, you know, we've got 
we had the lockout. I think everybody on both sides of the table really needed to see a work stoppage in order to break that that wall of tension that everybody was so afraid of the strike. And now, you know, now that we've got that out of the way, I think we can deal a little bit more frankly, a little bit less like high mindedly now that the uh now that we've all w- lived through a work stoppage, uh, the minor leagues are unionized, which was, That's right. I know, you know, I still have my t-shirt, uh, but I haven't had to wear it in, in the past year or so. Uh, Put it out to know, pastor. Cause they have a, I might, I might make it into a pillow, might sew up the, <laughs> the, the arms and leaves and make it a, a bot. I was about to say a body pillow might be a Bobby pillow. Uh, but, Ooh, wow. but also good well done well i've missed that i've missed the puns you know so every, we don't have enough punning in podcasts anymore so what i was what i was building up to is that yes everything is good now or at least everything is stable but the success of every labor movement rests on yes appreciating your victories and you know knowing when you've when you've done well and you know being able to uh, really sell when you accomplish something, but you're also constantly looking ahead to the next fight. And this is something that I think uh, sports unions have had kind of a hit or miss record on Uh, here. I'm going outside baseball a little bit, but you have to gear up for, for the next thing. And so, you know, we're seeing, I would say freer free agent spending than, than we were maybe five years ago. Uh, I think the, that immediately like that immediate glut either side of the lockout really helped sort of reset some of those higher level salaries. Uh, but I could see some more trouble brewing based on, uh, I don't know, we'll probably talk about the Otani contract and the deferrals and what that means for, for the market. That's like the, the big thing that I think is in terms of the stuff that's in the news right now. And then there's, we talk about state of labor and baseball. There's the amateur side with NIL and the, the college game. And, and uh, I don't know, there's some interesting, there's something that happened in the, with regard to the NHL draft in the past week that I don't know if you've been on, but I'm, I want to bring up and sort of talk to you guys about how that might apply to baseball. So not as busy as it has been, but, but this affords us to sort of uh, the opportunity to take a step back. I feel as though we have a little bit of a buffet with all of the topics that Bauman just, just laid out there and all of the ones that you and I shared before uh, we started recording this podcast, Alex, but uh, you got your plate is empty. Where do we go first? What, what station are we stopping at first? Well, I mean, I I almost feel like we should get Otani out of the way because I I'm really curious to kind of hear your perspective on this. I know Bobby is as well because it caught I think just about everyone off guard. The structure of it, the the extremely large number, obviously the crazy amount of money that's deferred, and I guess like I kind of want to start with like how much you care about that, like like from the perspective of like a fan, like does what the Dodgers are doing with his contract kind of matter to you and what sort of precedent, do you, if any, do you think it sets? Because there was a lot of sort of hand-wringing in the wake of it, right? What is this going to mean for the free agent market? And then and then we just kind of moved on, right? Because he's such a unique player and he's the the only kind of player that can sort of garner that that sort of thing. So I'm curious to hear your your perspective on it. Well, I think you really hit the nail on the head there by saying we moved on because he's unique. And this is, you know, when I've been asked about this, I did a couple radio hits and, you know, obviously wrote about this a few times. I would hesitate to use anything with Otani as a precedent because, you know, until they start liking, letting uh, Jake Cronenworth pitch again, there's nobody Cowards. like him. Cowards. And so, and he's such an unusual public figure as well that I 
don't know how much what he does applies to everybody else. So in ter- and also in terms of the deferrals, this is something that, you know, I'm not the only person who's saying this, but any other team could do this. And it's, but I think the important thing uh, to remember with the deferrals is that it lowers the practical value of the contract. Like the reason it counts less against the competitive balance tax is that getting your money later makes your money effectively worth less. And so my big question with Otani is not the deferrals. I think I would say like, I hope everybody's sort of briefed on like, this is not $700 million. This is closer to 460 million, but there, you know, there are deferrals in uh, the Teoscar Hernandez deal. There are deferrals in the Mookie Betts deal. There are deferrals in um, the Freddie Freeman deal. This is something that the Todd Bowley, who's in the, um, the Dodgers management group or ownership group now owns Chelsea in the Premier League. They're doing a lot of this very long contracts to sort of amortize the value of uh, of transfer fees. So to do some sort of this creative accounting to get around there, what they call financial fair play rules uh, in soccer. So this is just sort of Dodgers mo. And I think the the important thing is that everybody is is understands that this is not for all practical you know, practical purposes. This is literally seven, $700 million, but it's not practically $700 million. And I think, you know, players, agents, GMs, they're all on the same page about that. So as long as everybody's going in, into this with their eyes open, I don't really care, you know, whether Shohei Otani himself gets $460 million from the Dodgers or $700 million or, you know, something in between. I'm curious what this means. The My biggest thing is, does this put a de facto cap on earnings for other players coming up behind him? And I think this is going to be less of a problem than it would have been just because a lot of the the big stars, like there's nobody like Otani, there's nobody like Trout, but like Fernando Tatis Jr. is locked up long-term. There's no like Harper Machado coming through the, the pipeline with one exception. Uh, and that's Juan Soto. And I'm curious how he and Scott Boris handle this next winter, because I think that you can spin – Otani's going to make more money than God, no matter what. He wants to play for the Dodgers. He took a deal that made him the highest paid player in baseball and got him to where he wanted to go and gave the Dodgers a chance to compete. I don't know, or at least allowed him to claim that it gives the Dodgers a chance to compete. Maybe that gets converted into an ownership stake later. Um, And so that's, that's all well and good for Otani. But if Soto gets into free agency... And he comes up against teams saying, well, Otani's worth 460. You're not getting more than 460 or you're not getting more than 46 million a year. I don't think Scott Boris is going to take that very well. And I don't think that the players union should should take that well. So I, I that's my only real concern with the Otani contract is the idea of it being held up publicly or within these negotiations as this is the new thing that we can't exceed. And that ends up diminishing Soto's value, which in turn diminishes the value of every free agent for the next five to 10 years. And so with, but at the same time, Soto is so young and he's got the ultimate bulldog age. And it would not surprise me in the slightest to see him blow past this and set a new benchmark himself next off season. So as, as far as Otani's deal goes, I won't know what to think about it in terms of like the state of labor until Soto signs his. Yeah. I don't know. It was, it was, it was very interesting to witness, but I think I I kind of fall on the on the same side of like thinking that Soto very well could blow past. I feel like people like I forget how young he is. Like, yeah. is what is he twenty four? Uh, he 20- will hit, hit free agency after his 
25 season. I forget when his birthday is. I don't have it memorized like I do Trout and Harper. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It it, it really it really so, wouldn't surprise me. But Harper's but. or sorry, uh, Soto's uh, twenty five now, and he'll be twenty five through. He'll turn twenty six during next year's playoffs. Come on, man. That's yeah. not fair. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, I mean, do you? I, I feel like there was a lot of sort of speculation that you know this was maybe going to come up in the next round of CBA negotiations, right? That they're going to try and litigate away the ability for players to to do this sort of thing. And I have, I don't know why the Players Association would ever come to the table on that sort of thing because you're removing the power. But like, I mean, do you see that as a sort of sticking point I years down the road? Again, I know it might depend on sort of where things land with Soto. Um, but do you see that coming up at all? I don't know what the incentive would be because, first of all, I'm not really sure which side would want to ban like these big deferred contracts. Because apparently, you know, this was something that Tani wanted, something the players' union has has uh, pushed to keep in, and like this is a, a horse trading thing. So, you know, whether owners want this or or the players want, you know, a limit on deferrals, like that, whichever side wants it is going to have to give up something in order to get it, and. I don't know. I don't get the sense that this is important enough to either side that uh, that they would actually make a rule change about it. I think what all this boils down to is just it's the ultimate like high level view of of uh, economic imbalance in sports, which is that particularly in a closed system like um, like Major League Baseball, where there's no relegation, uh, when one team is good. The per like of that's bad that the Dodgers are good. We have to make them spend less so that teams that don't spend as much will be competitive. And like, first of all, that's not going to work because part of the reason that Tony wanted to go to the Dodgers is they're so well set up. Like they like not like sort of they they spend a lot. They win that sort of a that's tautological, I guess. But it's a good place to work. They have good coaches. They have good player development staff. It's a nice place to live. Obviously. If all things being counterpoint, equal, all things counterpoint, are equal. counterpoint, who wants to live in L.A.? Come on, let's be let's be. I mean, honest. I don't, but like <laughs> this I, is an anti-L.A. So much. Let's keep it that way, Bauman. It's it, sorry. It's a good place for young, rich athletes to live. OK, good, good, good clarification. So like if if I were picking some, you know, any major league city to live in like it would be someplace cold and miserable i don't we don't need any more evidence that i'm wired differently than your average baseball player (laughs) but so the dodgers would assign him anyway if if everybody made the same salary is is my point and it's just a it's such a an anti-creative like really nihilistic way of looking at the world we have to peg back the teams that are actually pursuing this as a sport instead of as a real estate scam. So, I mean, that's just really what all this boils down to is it's when fans are saying it's, oh, my team didn't get this player and I'm going to fill my diaper about it. And when other owners are are saying it or people uh, carrying water for owners, it's much the same sentiment. So, I don't know. I don't think that really changes anything, the structure of this deal or, or the dollar amount involved. I don't think it does either. I, I was always in the camp that this made it the structure of Otani's deal made it actually easier for any team in MLB yep. to in good faith offer it than if they actually had to pay him seventy million dollars per year. And so I don't understand just because he happened to land 
with the Dodgers. I, I suppose that the frustration comes from the fact that they could afford the $70 million per year and they basically don't have to give it to him now and they should have to give it to him because they have it. I think that that was like the very narrow line that fans were sort of trying to argue or that like small market defenders were sort of trying to argue. But I'm, I'm, I remain more fascinated in how this plays out with someone like Juan Soto. I know his name yeah. keeps coming up because he's the next superstar free agent to come up who will get one of these these 10 plus year contracts most likely if we take the Scott Boris model and we apply it to Juan Soto but you know Boris was very intentional in coming out and saying that the market in his mind is still status quo and that was the way that he described yes. it and you might say that um I, I thought that that was interesting three-dimensional chess from his perspective because for him to say the market is status quo would imply that okay Otani's not actually making 70 million dollars per year so I'm not going to try to get 60 for Soto or something like that. But I think that he was basically trying to unpack the idea that the market is not changed in that deferrals are the expectation now, because that'll be more harmful to players who don't want to take deferrals, his clients who don't want to take deferrals in the long run than just admitting that Otani is an outlier and that no other player really in, in this market, the way that it's structured could or should command 70 million average annual value. Yeah, I mean, I think Otani, that is close to what Otani is actually worth, like $7 Agreed. million dollars a I year. Agree. But, yeah. but I think the the way to look at this, and the way I would look at this is the the dollar value and the percent that are, the percent that's deferred, these are canards. This is not the point. The point is the deferrals actually do make the contract worth less to the player for you know, for practical purposes, why, you know, it's why they get discounted against the competitive balance tax. And so just don't look at this as a $700 million contract. Look at this as a $461 million contract. And I think once you do that, it all makes sense. Like nobody cares about contract structure. Like if, if it's a no interest deferral, then that makes, that actually makes the contract worth less. And so the headline figure is big and flashy. And I think my hope is that that big headline figure, the $700 million, gives Boris more room to maneuver with Soto. But again, we won't know until it happens. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that all plays out. No one cares about contract structure except for maybe the three people sitting on this Zoom <laughs> right now. That's right. And the thousands and thousands of droves I, of people I, out there listening. I'd say That's most right. of the people who care about contract structure work at Fangraphs, and I'm very happy that they do because I've had to have so much explained to me over the the past year. I Before we, we get too far down the rabbit hole of, I mean, I know deferred deferred money is like, it was in the news. It's a recent thing. But before we get too far down the rabbit hole of the, the MLB, the state of labor in in the bigs, I don't want to forget about the CBA. So the minor league CBA. So last time we talked, um, the players had uh, formed a union. They had been recognized. They were uh, about to start the process of bargaining. And since then, I think maybe faster than any of us expected, maybe faster than even the players involved, maybe faster than anybody except a select few people on either side of the table expected, uh, and minor league baseball CBA was agreed to and ratified. I, I lost my shirt in the the effectively wild predictions game because I thought this was going to take all season. I thought it was good. Yeah, I thought it was going to take like over a year, you know, based on all of the things that they could have brought to the table and fought over and gone tooth and nail and all of the high powered lawyers on each side who, uh, you know, are, we're not going to be hurting for money given the fact that the minor leaguers were, um, 
you know, now now part of the MLB Players Association and had all of their resources to fight this this first contract down to the down to the wire. But it, it happened really fast. I from a thirty thousand foot view, everything that's in the minor league CBA, it's also it's obviously not perfect. No no CBA is ever perfect. Is it better than, worse than, or about what you expected it to be? I would say just in terms of the so I think you have to look at this. This is a common refrain you see from labor people who like they unionize someplace like a Starbucks or a, a newsroom or like a tech company. And in order to avoid in order to undermine the union, the uh, the company gives everybody a 10 percent raise. You know, I think we, I think Tesla just did that today. Um, and so I think you have to look at those gains, like the housing gains and stuff, the stuff that they got before. Uh, the actual unionization effort got off the ground. You have to look at that as part of the this whole process as well, even though that wasn't the union as such. And so, I mean, I'll just look. I'll just say this: like, it, the minimum salaries got got doubled at every level, at least. And so, any CBA that doubles your salary, uh, I think you you know you have to tip your cap and say, well done. It's not. It's not what uh, minor leaguers make in other sports. Now, baseball's minor leagues are bigger and sort of go deeper than they do in hockey and basketball. But I think it gets them to within striking distance of where you uh, can get get closer to what you know, some minor league hockey players and minor league basketball players make. And, you know, obviously, you know, there are things that that I don't love about this. I, I think I'm less of a, a an anti-minor league contraction hardliner than some people are, but obviously reducing the size of the minor leagues is, um, is it's bad. You know, it's bad for the, I think it's bad for the game. Um, and, but it's, I think it's something that was probably going to happen anyway. Uh, and so yeah, I think that's like the, the big trade-off. So I don't know, you get, you can live on some of these salaries now, which you couldn't before. And I think just that alone is, is a huge win. It is sort of interesting to see MLB sort of, again, with the, you know, with there being a CBA in place, with there being a union in place, them sort of clawing at the the edges, at the things they can take back. You mentioned um, potential contraction of minor leagues. Um, you know, they re- uh, reduced the size of the domestic reserve list as well. MLB spent a lot of, t- a lot of time and energy lobbying florida politicians this year to like exempt minor leaguers from from minimum wage right obviously that's where half of half of the teams play their their spring training and so it it almost seems like they're sort of shifting the front a little bit to these sort of legal battles that they can maybe wedge i don't know i'm curious how you think that plays into MOB strategy going forward now that there's obviously a framework of like, you can touch these things, you can't touch these things. I think having the CBA is a necessary bulwark against this because I mean, the op- there's some, so this is not strictly labor related. It's a little bit off the beaten path, but when the, the Braves uh, got their, their subsidies from Cobb County from their, for their new stadium in the battery, uh, it was so unpopular there. The um, like the the county commissioners who approved the deal got voted out of office. In it was characterized at the time as like a deeply Republican area. Like that area is a little more blue, purple to blue now. Um, but it was viewed as like this is the end of the the stadium financing graft machine. And I think 
I don't want to blame Donald Trump specifically, but I think that the the Overton window for corruption has swung back in a big way in the past seven years. And so because of that, it's so easy for a business to just base it. So to either, you know, through can- campaign contributions or just by courting uh, politicians who want to own workers like that's own perhaps in the literal as well as uh, idiomatic sense. Uh, you can get so much done if you're trying to screw your labor force. And so that's why having this on paper is a, it's a big deal. And so, and at the same time, like it makes me wonder what MLB's end game is with some of, you know, you mentioned Florida, like the, the minimum wage exemption and stuff like that. Like it makes me wonder how productive that's going to be. I think um, when we, I, it really honestly can't be overstated how fast this all happened. Like how fast the minor league unionization drive happened, the recognition, the, the, the how fast they started bargaining and how fast they agreed to a contract was actually shocking to me. But when I look at it now, about a year later or a little bit less than a year later, I, I think about it more in the terms of were working conditions bad enough that the faster they came to any contract would be better than the things that they would have expected to get had they drawn this fight out longer. And I guess when I when I reflect back on it in that way, for all of the things that, that are in this CBA, for all of that you could say about how if they went on strike, that they probably would have had a lot higher salary minimums. They probably would have made a lot more inroads in terms of uh, long-term sustainability of the minor leagues and, and limiting jobs and cutting jobs. But would they have been able to organize that given all of the unique challenges that they face being split between minor league levels or, or, or teams just cutting players for any no good reason or all of these things that logistically we talked about made it hard for them to even form a union in the beginning. I, I made this argument on this podcast last year and you <laughs> called me a sellout. <laughs> Did I? I don't know that I used the word pull out the receipts. You didn't, you didn't use you didn't say sellout. You producer run the tape. Counter revolutionary or something. No, no. What happened was you called me accelerationist and yourself incrementalist. Yeah. And then I said, I think of you as more of the accelerationist. And you said, I don't think that's true. And I think accelerationist is cooler to be. So really what happened was you were just telling me I was cool. <laughs> well, that certainly wasn't my intention. Right, you're um, talking to someone who listened to this episode like an hour ago. So he's fresh in his mind. I did, yes. I, I listened to it to refresh what, what we talked about. You know, it, it, it's, it's important to make sure that these are one big thread that we're weaving. But uh, do you share that perspective then? Yes. The same perspective that I have that how fast they got the contract is more beneficial to more human beings in real life than the theoretical future contract that they could have gotten had they gone on strike or or drawn this fight out for two years. Yes. And I also don't think that a, a protracted strike, like, I don't know, we, we talked about this last year, I think. Getting these guys to to all come together and go on strike, just knowing what that might mean, what knowing, knowing what missing even a couple months of their uh, minor league careers might mean for their ability to make, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars later. In so far as, as like 90% of these guys will never even reach arbitration, but they all think they're going to, you know, sign a $50 million contract when they, once they hit the majors, I just don't think that that was ever going to happen on an organizational level. And once, 
once you know that it's not in your best interest to drag this out, not just for that reason, but because, like you said, the sooner these raises get put into place, the sooner these people's lives improve immeasurably. Uh, so there's that. And also, like, I imagine, you know, based on our experience negotiating uh, a collective bargaining agreement, uh, the minor leaguers probably had an easier time getting their emails returned. So, and like everybody who's working on the CBA is working on it full time. So, MLB slowed down the bargaining dates um, going around a, uh, around the lockout. That was a tactical maneuver. That wasn't like a a, a practical thing. A practical yeah. thing. Like it it wouldn't actually take them a month in between meetings to actually get their shit together and come come up with a counter proposal. So I think both sides wanted to make. A month Make is a such deal. a such a specific amount of time. It's almost like you you've almost had experience. With, I just having that. to wait a month. No, I mean I've hit myself over the so. head with a hammer so many times since <laughs> since that I. <laughs> You're watching <sighs> Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Like this seems kind of nice, you know, not soul crushing at all. This seems yeah, like a preferable. Well, you're telling me this is the fifth annual of uh, life. state of labor in baseball podcast. When in reality, it's the thirteenth, and I just can't remember the other ones. <laughs> We're holding together a very finite version of reality. It's all a house of cards. If one of us lets Alex's it slip hair that we've keeps been changing doing. color. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think they're in an interesting play. I mean, do you do you think that like again, I don't know how these structures work within Major League Baseball, but like, is it I mean, I know the answer to this. Is it more work to negotiate two CBAs? But like, I think, I mean, you're dealing with two, now two sort of distinct groups with their own unions and their own sort of structures and stuff. I mean, does MLB have to shift its focus at all? Because I know for me, that'd be a lot of plates up in the air. Yeah. I wouldn't be able. To, I wouldn't be able to negotiate one. You and me both. It's. <laughs> So I, Light it work. is a heavier Light lift work. just because you you've it, got Alex. two, <laughs> just because you've got two, like you said, related but distinct uh, unions. But also, like tons of companies deal with way more unions the, uh, than this within their their labor forces. So, like, I don't know, like hospitals have more than two unions. So it's yeah. it, it, you just hire a couple extra lawyers and you make sure that like you know your vice president of of HR or whatever the the title is is in contact, you know, constant contact with the union leadership. So you and also once you get the first CBA out of the way, everything else that follows is easier because you're working on stuff that already exists. So yes, I think it is a heavier lift. Um but they just bill more hours to their outside counsel and everybody's everybody's fine. You know, it appears that the major league baseball CBA ends in 2026, which we know at the end yeah. of 2026, and the minor league baseball CBA runs through 2027. That's not ideal. I think that they should line up because a, a collective, any sort of collective action in which you could both do it at the same time would be. It's hard to quantify how beneficial that would be, especially to the minor league side, where like if they were going to go on strike, doing it with the uh, the protection of the major league baseball players also being on strike and we can bargain these contracts and we can fight for these principles at the same time seems like a sort of thing that would have been an admirable thing to try to get the CBA into. I guess three years would have been short for a first CBA. 
I say as someone who is renegotiating a, a three-year CBA. But like, I, I, and I'm also it, it, not what, sure why. You know, is there a personal experience that would lead you to believe that you know having related unions with the some you know the same CBA bargaining uh, CBA expiration date would give you a stronger negotiating position? I'm just saying from a from a macro from from some of a macro from a macro someone who's interested in labor perspective. You know, the general strike, it's coming, Mike. We got to all I line know. up. Everybody just, <laughs> everybody's CBA expired at the same time. You know, they should have considered that. That's it's, so, it's just bad union bureaucracy, I guess. I mean, it was probably very hard to get them to even give four years, let alone five. I think five years is, I mean, five years is the, the standard. Is the standard for, yeah. Yes. So, and I don't think, I'm not really sure that either the MOBPA or the league wants to negotiate to at the same time. So, the reason, like you said, the reason the general strike and everybody lining up for 2028 is so it's such a big deal is because you want to be able to shut down the entire works and exert pressure like on a like an industry level rather than a company. Yes. Level. Yes. And that doesn't really apply to baseball because so I I keep bringing up the uh, the U.S. women's national hockey team strike as like the pinnacle of of sports labor action in our mm-hmm. lifetimes. And the reason that that was so successful is they got to all the potential scabs before USA hockey did. And having the minor leaguers unionized, having them in the fold, it prevents them from like, let's say they want to go replacement players again, like they did in 1995, where are they going to get them? So just having the, I think having the minor leagues under, under contract, um, while the next God, I hope there's not another lockout, but if there is, uh, you know, having them under contract when, when the next CBA comes up, when there's the next potential for a labor stoppage, I think that provides as much leverage as negotiating two new CBAs at the same time would. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is largely true. And they're the things that they're fighting for are, are often so different that, I don't know that there would be one thing across both contracts that that both bargaining units would be like we're not signing a contract without this in it. Um, it would have to be more, much more like a we're not signing our contract until you guys do in order to help you out. And I, I think that just the, mm. I guess the political machinations of those bargainings are so just in diff- on different planes that. I, uh, yeah, I'm skeptical of how altruistic your average big leaguer is toward. I mean, me too. B- I mean, big time. As, I, as I did have by a the funny history of the MLBPA. I did have a funny uh, image while we were talking about this. Like imagine explaining 2028 and the general strike to like Chris sale. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's that's he'll be pitching for the Braves still then, according to the extension that he just signed. Is that, is it going to go that long? I, I thought have, it was only I two actually, years. Is 2028 the next don't it's, scare it's, me like that. It's closer than you think, Mike. It's closer than you think. Um, it's put me in the fucking ground. Jesus. I would like to ask you about uh, something that I, I don't know how much of an existential threat it is to to labor in baseball, but it's certainly of economic concern to the entire baseball industry. And I would like to frame this question through one specific baseball team, and that is the Seattle Mariners, who are, are uh, I would say, not crushing it these days. Um, from a financial and operational perspective. Now, Alex and I spent a, a hilarious amount of time explaining what's going on with their RSN deal and them buying the RSN and 
all of the distribution of their game uh, a few weeks ago on the podcast. And I, I, I think it was a great conversation. If you didn't check it out, maybe go back and, and find that. But the Mariners, to me right now, are, are the perfect example of a team who is an alarming blueprint that other teams will either try to follow or will just grab onto the tail of and cry poor over. So the Mariners' RSN is not performing as expected, and they are a mid-to-high market, but obviously not a market like LA or New York. And they have used this largely as an excuse to not really add to the team at all. And they obviously broke their curse a couple years ago, and since then, the team has gotten... 5 to 10% worse and they seem like they're going in the wrong direction. I'm curious whether or not you think that the Mariners are something of a canary in the coal mine for the next fight, the next industry-wide macroeconomic fight over how much money is coming into baseball and how that money should be redistributed. We when we first started doing these episodes, it was amidst what we now can safely call a capital strike. Yeah. And I'm still not really even sure why they were claiming they had to do that. And now I just see basically just like a Febreze version of that same exact argument that the Mariners are trotting out there. So I turn it to you. Are the Mariners the canary in the coal mine for what we will be talking about one, two, maybe three years from now on these episodes? Maybe. I think that depends on how in sort of these mid to to upper mid markets, how the RSN bubble bursts and what shape that takes. and how they figure out to recoup that, that local broadcast revenue. Um, I don't know what the Mariners are doing apart from getting cheaper and getting worse. And so like the fact that they're getting worse while getting cheaper doesn't bother me that much. Um, it would be nice to see Luis Castillo and Julio Rodriguez in the playoffs every year. Uh, if I was going to say, if working for a Mariners fan, it would probably be better for me if they were good, but I've seen how, how Meg reacts to, uh, <laughs> Games with high stakes. tension Mariners games. So yeah, exactly. I don't know. Maybe I'll be happier if they go seventy two and ninety for the next next five years. Um, if they're if they're making the playoffs every year, I might have to find a new job. Um, but what's going to happen if they get if they get cheaper? Is they're going to get worse unless they get a lot smarter, which it doesn't seem like they're really interested in doing either. And so it's annoying. I would say not as annoying as what the Orioles are doing, where they've I don't want to say lucked into because they did like a lot of I don't know, drafting Gunnar Henderson in the second round is like, I don't know, they should get credit for doing that, but they're going to get like three potential MVP level up the middle guys all at the same time. Plus a bunch of other regular, you know, plus a bunch of other really good complimentary pieces. They won hundred games last year and they're doing jack shit with it. They're wasting it. And like, I find that a lot more offensive than, I don't know, the Mariners being the 18th best team in baseball with the 18th highest payroll or, or wherever they end up. Like, I think they're a cool team with a cool history. And, you know, I would like to see their fans uh, have something worth caring about, but the, they're suffering their punishment for being run the way they are. And I don't think that's inappropriate at all. I mean, how annoying do you think this gets for fans? When, when Bobby and I talked about this a few weeks ago, um, he he made a point that was like, you know, fans shouldn't have to care about this, shouldn't have to give a shit about RSNs, right? It's like, whatever your rights fees are does does not affect me in, in theory. I mean, I 
if the rights fees go up, those, you know, that might get passed down to me in my TV package. Um, but I, I don't know. There are all these sort of moves that are kind of being made in various corners. Diamond Sports is talking with Amazon potentially, right? But Major League Baseball is trying to claw back these rights and maybe create their own um, platform or work something out with with Amazon or Apple on their own. I mean, and so like the owners and and front offices throw out these excuses, right? That say, hey, we don't have this revenue coming in. We can't spend on the team. I That's, you know, you hear a version of that sort of excuse kind of kind of every day. I mean, do you think there's a point at which fans where it kind of boils over to a point where fans are like, what the hell is my am, am I doing? I I literally cannot watch my favorite baseball team or or my favorite hockey team or my favorite basketball team, right? In the case of of that specific RSN. So I I'm wondering how this this unfolds in the next couple of years as a as a as a consumer, which I know you're you're uh, often thinking about. No, I think that that's a, a good way to put it because I think fans should care really about two and a half things. So, like, one is my team good? Is are they going to be good? And like, the half is like, are they going to be interesting? Like, is it going to be a good experience to watch them? Uh, whether that's going to the park or um, I don't know, is it going to be fun? Like, this is an entertainment thing. This is a leisure activity. Like, am I getting my my leisure in by watching them uh, and following them, caring about them and spending money on them. And the, the other thing is how annoying and or expensive is it going to be to see them play? I, those are the only two things that I think fans should care about uh, in terms of these RSN deals. And there are a lot of different ways that this can go. We could, I don't know if we're going to see the dissolution or the reintegration of cable. I know that uh, we've talked about that on this podcast uh, more times than I can count. Legendary but, stuff. But there, there are multiple ways that I think there are multiple tenable ways for this to go. You know, we've seen, I think it's the Phoenix Suns and the Vegas Golden Knights have done some creative things with their own like streaming rights. Uh, you know, I think a lot of Mariners fans, but not all, would, if it's cheap enough, would you know pay for like watch every Mariners game for. I don't know, a hundred bucks a season. I think that probably sells a lot. Or if there's like a pay-per-view option, you get, you know, a buck a game or something. Um, I think that's one way it could go. I think that we could see renegotiation of streaming pack uh, uh, packages. I think we could ultimately see the end of blackouts and maybe MLB.tv, you know, uh, picks up some of that slack. I don't know how this is going to go. Uh, I will say that like I could see multiple... I could see more than one side of 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 this issue because, you know, I subscribe to a lot of streaming services anyway. So like the the odd game on Peacock or Apple doesn't bother me. But for people who, you know, can't afford to subscribe to anything other than like Netflix, like I could and who want to watch every single game. That's the other thing. It's like I'm not going to watch all 162 games of any one team. Uh you know, I could see why that's frustrating. And then you look at what MLS did where like I would watch, I wasn't a diehard MLS fan, but when they were on uh, ESPN and Fox, like I would, or on local TV here with the union, I would watch, uh, you know, a decent number of games. And then they went exclusive on Apple, which if you're a diehard, like that's great, but I haven't watched a single MLS game since that, uh, since that happened. So I think you could silo this stuff off I thought you were a big for all mankind head. 
How are you watching For All Mankind? It's without... a separate. It's a separate. Oh, um, okay. So package. You have to pay, like, yeah, if it was just all package. on Apple, then like I'd watch MLS all the time. But I'm not. I don't care enough about, ironically, the Philadelphia Union to. <laughs> Like I'll watch them when they're in the Champions League, and that's on on the cable that I pay for already. So, yeah i I think there's got to be a mix. I think of of national local TV and streaming. I don't know. This is not my. I I really don't know enough about the future of, of streaming media to to really tell you what the smart play is. But yeah. whatever they do is going to work for some people, but not for others. I don't know. I don't know that any of us really know enough about the future of streaming media. I don't think the people who are in charge i think they might know the least you know like i i don't i don't trust really david zaslov's decisions about what he's putting on his own streaming service that he he owns so much of our the history of our intellectual property in america (laughs) they so the so you 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 individually yeah so right as i start this cycling newsletter i'm gonna plug later there's a um there was a streaming service called GCM plus, which showed if you had a VPN, you could see like every big cycling race mm. and it's owned by like the Warner discovery, uh, behemoth behemoth. And they shut it trust. down for we no can reason. Call it the Warner discovery trust. We can so just now like, I'm like, I don't know, some of this stuff's going to be on Peacock, but we're, you know, we're going to keep pirate. We're going to go back to the old days of, of pirating and steep hill.tv. Yeah. yeah. E that's not what you want, but, I don't know that anybody, I don't know that I, part of the, the, I guess, existential fear that I have over this when it comes to the state of labor in baseball is just, it just seems like there's a lot of little fires in all parts of the uh, consumption of the game. Uh, It's very expensive to go to watch a game in person. They almost don't want you to do that at this point. Uh, It's expensive to eat when you're at that game. It's expensive to watch the games on TV. It's, confusing to watch the games on tv Uh, you don't it's it's inconsistent how you watch the games on tv and it seems like there's a lot of little like i said little fires cropping up in all different parts of the game and how they monetize it now is it labor's side to is it labor's problem to deal with that no it's not it's it's the business's side to deal with that in capitalism like they they if they want to monetize it they need to figure out how to get their revenue streams in order and to continue to make it at least watchable enough that they can extract money from consumers like us, which they've done for all you can say about major league baseball owners. They've been pretty good at extracting money from their consumers of the history, over the history of the game. I guess I just worry that like anytime there is any turbulence on that side of the baseball economy, it is usually labor who has to solve for it because yeah. they will or the get, consumer, some combination of, yeah, Exactly. And so is this, are all of the sorts of things that they need to triage on that side, are they just going to be like, no, you guys, you guys figure it out, you know, you or you guys take the brunt of it. And how are we, is that going to become the only thing that we're talking about on this podcast or in this corner of our, our little weird internet over the next couple of years is they're just, they're just crying poor all of the time because of the collapse of streaming or the consolidation of streaming or TV doesn't exist anymore. And who will bear that brunt is, I think, a fascinating question. I have some sneaking suspicions. You know, I don't think it's going to be Rob Manfred and his group of cronies. That's I think that I think is is where this is going to end up blowing back on labor because whenever there's any kind of economic downturn, 
you know, there's a, a recession or like a, a somewhere, some disruption in the supply chain, service gets worse, uh, prices go up and we pay more like consumers pay more for gas or cars or, you know, semiconductors or whatever. And when those conditions ease, the prices stay the same. You know, they never go back down to normal. It's never, there's never like a temporary price increase. So to your point, what's going to happen? Let's just like use these. If, if baseball is a hundred units, right. And that's the money that comes into the game and labor takes 50 and ownership incurs 30 as costs and as other costs and has 20 as profit, then Oh no, I gave myself hard things. 25 and 25 <laughs> costs and, and profit. So I could do this math in my head. Let's say the, you know, and and the the streaming bubble collapsed and and revenues went down. And instead of a hundred units coming in, there was 80 units. Like if labor got 40 and ownership went to 20 cost and 20 profit, that wouldn't, I don't know, it would be bad for everybody, but it would be equitable or relatively equitable what's going to happen is no matter how how big the the big number or how much the big number collapses ownership is going to want not just their 25 in profits but they want to make their profits grow to 30 or 35 with every deal and that's where you get something like uh the series of lockouts that almost killed the nhl uh and so i think baseball is so there's so much more institutional inertia uh involved in baseball than hockey that i don't worry that about like that kind of real like comet that killed the dinosaurs type of thing happening. Yeah. But it's the, the first CBA. I don't know. It wouldn't shock me if we lose like half a season in a lockout, the first CBA after the streaming bubble well and truly collapses, but on a team by team basis, like the Mariners lose their RSN or, you know, this, all the ballet teams or whatever. A lot of the, the teams that are most likely to do what you said, already doing it like what the fuck are the pirates going to do that they're not doing already or the a's you know and, or the reds like even or the orioles or even like even teams that are good now like how much further can they pull pull things back so i think that they've yeah. gotten they so got a lot of players they, on league minimum already you know like they, there's not really i mean they, they've gotten so greedy there's not that much more for them to or there's not that much more space for them to go yeah this might be like galaxy branding it a little bit, but like, is there in a roundabout way, you know, any sort of, I guess benefit is the, is the wrong way of putting it. But like, I, what we've seen in this is like, it, what it ultimately does is it starts to pit teams against each other. I mean, I mean, major league baseball would love an overarching agreement that like everyone is, is happy with, but because everyone's deals look slightly different and there's different streams of money coming in, like you have these small market teams that are facing different conditions than, than big market teams. And it does seem over the last few years that we're seeing maybe more fractures in what has long been a sort of united front on ownership side. And we saw that, especially like with regard to the Padres for a couple of years, right? There was, and, and it feels like maybe that the Jets have cooled on that um, a little bit because like they, they, they never got good. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I wonder if like there is a way for labor to sort of take advantage of it in some regard. The, the fact that, that you do have owners who are like at their throats, at each other's throats. 
in some regard. I love where your head is. I love this. I love this energy. They're in disarray. We attack. You're like Napoleon right now. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, the way you framed it as like this being a recent crack in the facade, you're you're like if Napoleon was too young to remember the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. They wanted to break the union and institute a salary cap, and they didn't. And yeah, I think they the, got too greedy. The psychic damage from that war led to a whole bunch of, of ownership side victories. But I don't know what the I don't know. I'm not fucking Sun Tzu. I don't know exactly what the <laughs> you know the labor relations stratagem is. But I think that there's yet, a public there's a public relations yet. wedge that you can drive between these teams, and I think that. I don't know. I think just the the sea change in the the quality of messaging that the union has had between the 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 sixteen seventeen CBA and the lockout, and then the minor league unionization effort. I think that they're getting savvier about how to exploit that. I don't know if there's like a, a legal opening, but there's definitely a public relations opening to, to sort of turn fans against ownership. Um, Mike, we're we're coming up on an hour here. Yeah. Uh. We have long discussed the uh, historic nature of your consumer rants at the ends of these episodes. <laughs> I don't know how they began. I don't even need to go back and know. This is just, this is oral history at this point. At the end of every state of labor in baseball, you come to us with a rant about day-to-day consumer life, baseball or not. And uh, I, I think that that time has come. When we were texting trying to schedule this, and as I was forgetting where I was going to be for the two weeks after Christmas and making you guys completely rewrite your calendar, uh, I was I was actually texting you guys from the airport as I was trying to fly from Philadelphia to Atlanta for Christmas. And I said, remind me about the soda stream water fountain. <laughs> so first, you guys first words. <laughs> oh, it's so much worse than you think, Alex. So when I fly. Obviously, you can't take liquid through the, you know, the metal detector. I don't like drinking a lot of caffeine uh, on a flight because I like to sleep on plane. So I take an empty water bottle, my plastic $8 Costco water bottle that I carry everywhere. And I get through security and I fill up at a spigot. And I'm sure that you guys know the water fountains they have in airports. They have them in gyms where they have the, you know, the water to mouth spigot. And they also have the little vertical thing so you can fill up your your water bottle. That's like. I remember the first time I saw it. It was like watching the moon landing. It's one of my favorite inventions. And in Terminal E, where Southwest flies out of Philadelphia. We're dropping names. So I've looked up how long this thing has been here. This is according to airportimprovement.com. Reliable source. As of. That's where I I go as well. I should read them daily. June 26, SodaStream has replaced several of these water fountains with branded devices that are 14 times the size. Uh, They operate on touchscreens. Touchscreens fucking suck. (laughs) Touchscreen, like, there's nothing wrong with switches and analog. You can't, like, I had to wait, like, three people, there was three people deep this line because the SodaStream machine, first of all, it would just give you a, a set amount of water instead of just you putting your bottle under there and the sensor reading it and filling it up until you took it fucking away. And so you had to like tap the fucking thing three times in order to get your full water bottle. And 
the big like this this big branded monstrosity that sticks all the way out into the thoroughfare, which the Philadelphia airport's basically the Hobbesian state of nature anyway. <laughs> so that's great for traffic. And the big innovation that it has after making things worse and advertising the fucking apartheid company, it, you know, the like one of the six companies that's actually on the BDS list uh, replacing <laughs> our our public utility, our very God given water, our human right with fucking soda stream. It says you can have still or sparkling <laughs> great and six flavors. <laughs> Who fucking wants flavored water? As you're about to get on a, an airplane where you're just trying to take water with you so you don't don't get dried out in the desiccated, recycled air. <laughs> that means you can't taste anything anyway. It's privatizing and making things worse, making everything it touches worse in the ser- in the service of geopolitical evil. I could not think of a better illustration for what ails American society in 2023 slash 24 than the soda stream machine at the Philadelphia international airport. I, I have to ask, um, cause I'm on PepsiCo partners.com, which I guess owns soda stream. I don't know. Shocking. Um, Shocking. I'm so surprised yeah. that one of the big companies acquired soda stream. Uh, did you download the app? Cause I, Cause did I download the app? I maybe hear there's an accompanying app. That was my mistake, Alex. I didn't download the app. Maybe it's it a connected ecosystem. Water bottle. Maybe it would have improved upon the push this button and water tech uh, water comes out technology. It's been around for 150 years. <laughs> the Romans are laughing at us. That is actually true. <laughs> that is actually true. They're like, all they can do is talk about how much we think about. Oh, the little the little bubble water machines. Look at these soft, decadent people <laughs> who think they've evolved beyond the little lever. That makes water come out of the hole. That's the all aqueduct. I want. It's all I want is literal water, the literal sustenance of life without having to navigate through fucking Google Play at the <laughs> airport while 300 angry guys named Frank are lined up behind me. Um, I have experienced soda stream at airports in San Francisco. Uh, it's it's horrible. It's horrible. You're right. I, I completely agree. Why put a touchscreen where a touchscreen doesn't belong? I completely agree. I don't want carbonated water. I just want cold water. Just cold water. I'd settle for lukewarm water <laughs> if it came from a public utility. What I was, what I thought you were going to say, Bobby, because I, I've also been through the San Francisco airport many times, and what they have is, I haven't seen the soda streams, but they have like just different water dispensers with like a sensor on the side. Yeah. So you put your water bottle and then you in put your hands. and then you, and then you hold your hand up to the side yeah. and it recognizes that your hand is there and dispenses water. And every single person who walks up to it, puts their water bottle in and then takes it away and then puts it back and then looks around to the sides and then looks to see what the other person is doing next to them. It looks for a button and it's miserable. I got to say, this is, this is, we're over engineering these days. Yes. I know that this has been true for a long time, and this has been at the center of many a consumer rant by Michael Bauman, trademark. Um, however, th- th- this kind of reminds me of how yesterday, I- I'm in the city of Los Angeles right now for work, and uh, yesterday the Uber I called, you don't get to control the make of the car that comes when you call Uber. You don't. If you could, I would choose never to ride in a Tesla. Unfortunately, I have been in the back of a handful of Teslas because of the Uber Corporation. 
And every time I'm like looking for the fucking button to press on how to get out of the fucking car. How about a, just a handle? What was wrong with the handle where I can see the handle? I got to press a button to like spring load open the door. What if we didn't do that? What it's if we did? The fact that all of these companies are, are run by and for people who are like they're money mover arounder people. They yep. they don't make they don't build because if they were engineers or artists and actually created something, they would know how they would know anything about how they how the stuff that they're trying to sell actually works and what it's supposed to do. And our society is increasingly built not to work. It's built to decay, to, to decay, to, to have planned obsolescence, to yes. frustrate public trust in public institutions. And like, oh, the government's not going to give you water at the airport anymore. So you so you have to buy a smart water. I wonder Hudson if that's News. where this is going to go. I, like I, how I mean, long until you can't get a water fountain? Without downloading an app right. and signing un- up for un- an email newsletter. Unlock your water by, by tweeting hashtag SodaStream. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, I, I, have a, I have a follow-up consumer rant. And uh, I actually have one more question to ask you about the state of labor in baseball. But uh, <laughs> we're going to do that on, um, on the Patreon feed, if that's all right with you guys. So we're going to stop down here. So, Bauman, I'm going to oh, give you a chance. Before you go to Patreon, can I plug yes, my... Yes, to plug yeah. your newsletter, please. Yes. So before we go to the thing that you guys have to pay for, the listeners, I'm going to ask you to pay for something else. <laughs> I've started a cycling newsletter called Wheelie Sports. It's on Substack. You go to wheeliesports.substack.com. It comes out twice a week. I'll be covering road cycling, so the Tour de France and everything uh, involved in you know the dozens of other races that happen throughout the season. Cycling, to me, is very much like baseball, and it's a sport with a proud literary tradition that takes for fucking ever to, uh, to resolve, and it's mostly about sitting around waiting for stuff to go wrong. And so it's, I know, you know, you guys know Jake Mintz. He's a big cycling person. He and I have bonded over. Uh, Who? 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 Some, uh, Zach Graham's (laughs) college classmate. I don't know if you met him. (laughs) Um, but we bonded over, over this on, uh, you know, the sort of the similarities between cycling and baseball. So wheelie sports, uh, dot substack.com it's $5 a month or $50 a year to read. And I would very much appreciate you guys support also sign up for for uh fangraphs memberships get all sorts of perks no ads stuff like that uh that's everything i had to plug um mike if you could just just not listen to what i'm about to say because i hate to compliment you while you're here but go sign up for mike's cycling newsletter for my money one of the best writers on the internet still writing everybody else has been driven out of this profession by the vagaries of the world, but Mike is still trudging along and I enjoy reading everything he writes. I've never regretted it. So go, oh, go check that well, out. Please. You want to know what the, uh, actually, as we, as we speak right now, the most recent post on the newsletter is 2,600 words about what a bad idea it is for the top teams in cycling to try to, uh, upset the structure of the sport to court American venture capital investment. So this Perfect. is all. Oh Perfect. my God. Perfect. If you like this, you will like that. It's all one story, <laughs> baby. It's all one take. It's all the same. Uh, Michael Bauman, thank you very much. We, we really appreciate your time. My pleasure. I'm not the shopping epicenter. I'm in a glass of a fit. Supply a fountain soda. Put some sugar on my tongue. I'll make you run it. Some soda.
I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya!